This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver is one of just a handful of school districts in the country where kids can learn an indigenous language off of a reservation, Lakota. We're going to meet one of DPS's two Lakota teachers on this last week of school. Kimimila Locke is moving on after this year. She's headed back to the Standing Rock Reservation where she grew up. She's been recruited to teach Lakota there. We visited Locke's classroom at the Denver Center for International Studies the other day. All right, Wana, Wanji, okay, Wanji, I'm here, she is tired. There are words everywhere. Giant post-its on the wall with vocabulary, emotions, for instance, how to say happy, sad, tired. The class is pretty small, so the six or so kids sit around a table in the middle of the room. That includes sixth grader Ray Vasquez, who's learning Lakota so he can communicate with his family, including his great-grandmother. She teaches me sometimes. She, We have to like take her places in cars, so me and her sometimes talk in Lakota, and I show her what I learn and stuff, and she teaches me some other stuff as well. It's a different story for his fellow sixth grader, Angelo Mayfield, who has Apache heritage. I'm in the class because my grandma wanted me to. She's, like, trying to help stop the DAPL, and so then she wanted me to join one day. The DAPL is the Dakota Access Pipeline, a controversial project that some on the Standing Rock Reservation in the Dakotas have been trying to stop. They speak Lakota there. We asked Ray Vasquez what his favorite word is. It means donut. They learn how to introduce themselves in Lakota as well. Here is Vasquez, and you'll notice that his introduction takes a while. And teacher Kimimila Locke joins me in the studio. Tell me about this introduction. It's not just, hi, I'm Ray. It, it's more extensive than that. Good morning. I'm Kimimila. Um, as a, the most indigenous cultures are collectivistic, collectivistic cultures. And in collectivistic cultures, um, you're, you're always, it's never, you're, 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 you never separate yourself from the larger group, the larger community. So as a Lakota person, when I introduce myself, I tell, I tell um, who my family is, I tell my origin, where I come from, where my community is, and I also tell where I live currently. And um, perhaps, you know, depending on the circumstance, I also tell what I do as well. And so if you just said, I'm Kimimila, there would be a curtness to that in Lakota. It... You you wouldn't hear that as a you Lakota. just wouldn't hear it. You just yeah. wouldn't hear that because you <laughs> you never assert yourself above your family. You always acknowledge your family. So um, yeah, you would just you just wouldn't do that. What are a few of the things that you would say if you were introducing yourself in Lakota? Uh, and, and tell us just some of what you were saying. <laughs> is that a lot? It, it doesn't feel like a lot. <laughs> um, I just, I said my, my name is Kimibla Lak. Um, I'm from Standing Rock. I'm also from Alaska. Um, I um, And then I also gave my, my Lakota name, which is um, she flies to defend her nation or her people. What is the status of the Lakota language these days? Um, 
I like to think, um, I, I, I like to, this hasn't like taken off or anything, but personally, I like to think of right now as being the renaissance of Native America. Um, there's this huge resurgence of language revitalization, bringing back our language. Um, we just recently, within the last um, couple of years, we just recently graduated our first group of fluent Lakota speakers who um, um, who fin- who were the first group to finish at the Language Nest. And the Language Nest is where it's essentially a daycare, but it's all in Lakota. So the babies, they're hearing, they're in an all Lakota environment. There's no English. You know, they're, they're only hearing that for for the first three years of their life. And this is uh, at, Stand- Standing Rock. at Standing Rock, yes. where you are headed back. Yes. Uh, and there is Lakota language, as we've said, being taught in Denver public schools. You're one of two teachers. Right. And uh, after your departure, you, you will be replaced with another Lakota teacher. Uh how unusual is that? Put that into some context. Um, hmm. See, so I've been a teacher for 15 years. Um, for the first 12 years, I was a high school English teacher. Um, when I I was I was teaching abroad in Abu Dhabi. When I came back to the states, I landed in in Denver, 2013. Um, and I came here specifically because one, my sister was here, and two, she convinced me, or she was the one that informed me of the Lakota language being taught at Denver Center for International Studies. And for me, that was my hook. I wanted my daughter, my daughter there. Yeah. Um, ironically, it turned out when I got here, they were actually looking for a teacher. So, and you had been exposed to Lakota as a kid, but you didn't really speak it fluently. So, for the first little while, you were learning. Alongside your I, students. I am learning. <laughs> you still are learning. I, I am still learning, yes. Um, so Lakota is a very complex and a very detailed language. Um, I, can, I can communicate basically, but if you want to, you know, communicate the way a fluent speaker would, it's um, it just, just for one example, every, every verb in Lakota has 37 conjugations. My goodness. Right. So, and it's very exact, very, very exact. For example, um, if I were to describe, you know, the in, in water, if you see the sun, the sun rays. Um, sort of reflecting. Right. In, inside the water. That's miniata um, jaja. That's a one specific word, whereas I took like a full paragraph to describe what that image was. So it's a very exact language, and you have to know... That, that is to say the language is very precise. The right. vocabulary is very, very precise. Perfect. There is a word for what the sun does to All the, t- yeah, the water. There's exact words for almost every instance in life, yeah. And what about new vocabulary? In other words, when you need to describe an iPhone... Okay. Um, that's a good question. There's yeah, a, is, is new language being invented? Yes, there is, actually. Um so the language, uh, the Lakota Summer Institute began in 2006, and there it's um, it's for one month, and it's basic, basically language immersion. I'll be going there starting June 12th, starting um, for the next three, the last three weeks in June. But there, you always have there's a whole mix of people come very very beginner basic, all the way to fluent speakers, and the fluent speakers, um, their task in coming is actually to add to the dictionary and to record, you know, to con- um, continuously. Update the dictionary. I understand, in fact, that your family has been instrumental in the preserving of the Lakota language. So this is a bit of a, a, a blood affair for you. It, yeah, we've we've been working hard. We've been working hard. As uh, my my father, you'll hear his voice throughout the Lakota dictionary. If you buy, want to buy the app on your Google Play, 
it's a you know um, it's a shameless plug right there. I was going to say you're a teacher <laughs> and a marketer, Kimila. <laughs> Sorry. Are your students all American Indian? They are not. They are not. They are not. No, only about half of my students are are native, and about half of the native students are Lakota. Um, the rest of my students, it's a mix of everyone that, you know, the, the mix of students that are um, at DCIS. So that means Caucasian, Latino, Asian? I have, I have the gamut. Yeah. You're taking Lakota yeah. in Denver Public Schools. I'm speaking with Kimamila Locke, who's one of two Lakota teachers in DPS. Uh, with the school year winding down, she's headed back to the Standing Rock Reservation where she grew up. She has been recruited to teach Lakota there. And I can't help but think that the language and the politics right now at Standing Rock must be quite intertwined for you. Your little sister, I understand, was instrumental in building the protest movement at Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline. How has it been to be here while your family has been at Standing Rock? This has been one of the most tumultuous years of my life, I'll say that, Um so January, <clears throat> January 26, I believe, uh, 2016 was the first meeting that we had. And it was just a handful of people on Standing Rock. And my mother, um, two of my younger first cousins, and in, for Lakotas, we call them brother and sister as well for first cousins. So I'll, I'll, I'll refer to them as my younger brother and sister. And my younger sister were, mem- were members and a co- another cousin as well. So there was a whole group um, of my direct family members that were at those initial meetings. And we were there from, from, from you know, I mean, as as a community, um, from February to, you know, through all through throughout the course of events until February 2017. When, so, it, yeah, when a lot of the when it was we were removed. But all that clean. to say, um, over you know, and during the fall, I made close to twenty twenty some uh, trips home um, in that time, and I was just you know. Just, just, just to, uh, just to be a part, and also because I was worried about my family, so I needed to go home and see them and be with them. How did having a grasp of the Lakota language, I don't know, maybe change your relationship to what was going on there? Um, you know, I said earlier that I feel like this is the Renaissance for Native America, and I feel like that's part of it is just the empowerment. Um, you know, when I was, you know, when we were younger. Um, it was forbidden to speak Lakota and it was very, you know, people only spoke when they were at home, um, in school. You know, people weren't allowed to speak the language. Yes, yeah, so let's just be clear that there was a concerted effort to wipe these languages really from the face of the earth and that you could right. be punished for speaking them. Yeah, severe punishment, severe punishment. There's There are just horrible stories. And every Native person in, in, in the United States and Canada, um, you know, <laughs> can go on for hours and tell those hor- horrific stories. It just takes a matter of Googling them, you know, the schooling, school, uh, this, um, the boarding, boarding schools and, you know, all of, uh, all of, all, all, all that happened with the trauma and everything. That's, um, that, that's a shared history across North America. So... Again, when I say it's the Renaissance, I, I'm just referring to that as because it's a it's a reclaiming of everything, a reclaiming of language, a reclaiming of um, no, you're not gonna you're not gonna put oil directly under our water source and have water coming out of our faucets within ten minutes without any kind of um, alarm system, without letting us know and letting our bodies be the first to be poisoned. Um, you know, despite the fact that this is going to affect 18 million people down you know downstream, that's not that are not Lakota as well. 
I'd like to talk just a bit more about um, the teaching of the language and, the, and maybe the obstacles to doing that. Uh, you teach both spoken and written Lakota, correct? I do. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And do you have to come up with a lot of your own materials? All the time. Yeah. Um, my I, my my um, skeleton or the 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 foundation that I work off is the is produced by the Lakota Language Consortium, and there's um, just again it's Standing Rock. Um, it, well, it's based actually in Rapid City, I believe. Oh, or, okay. But they're you know they they also have offices at Sitting Bull College on Standing Rock, but um, I use that as my base. But as far as like you know producing anything in class, I have to self produce. So it's yeah, posters, um, games, flashcards, everything. It's self produced. You have taken students to Standing Rock. Um, so I took a group in the fall. I took them to I took them to Ocheti Shakoe camp in September. Um, that and that was before things had escalated, and you know it became unsafe to take students there. Um, and I also took a group of students in March to the um, to the wel- the Lakota New Year, which is the welcoming back of the of the Thunders, and that was in the Black Hills um, Black Hills area. How has um, learning Lakota, this language that you grew up around but didn't speak fluently, how how has it changed your brain? Oh my, oh that's a complicated question. Um, or how you perceive the world, just briefly. It's it's expanded it in ways. Well, I guess the the I think the thing that has been most poignant for me is that um, realizing how much Lakota I've actually or how much I actually thought in luck in terms of Lakota, you know, in terms of um, conceptualizing things. And, you know, like when I would be like right, right, right now, and I'm struggling to express something in English and in my, in, in my brain, I'm thinking, if only I could just say that, and it would just be instant. Everyone would understand what exactly what I'm saying. Because there might be a more precise Lakota there is. term there for the thought you're having. Exactly. Can you say what that thought is, just quickly? Uh... <laughs> not at the moment. It's, okay. <laughs> not, not at the moment. Yeah. Kimimila, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And how, how how might I say thank you? Doksha ke wachia kinkte. Oh, thank you. Wopila tranka. Wopila tranka. Kimimila Locke is one of two Lakota language teachers in Denver Public Schools. She's returning to the Standing Rock Reservation where she grew up to teach DPSs, finding a replacement. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It was once the largest employer and private landowner in Colorado. The Colorado Fuel and Iron Company ran the largest steel mill west of the Mississippi. The steel made at CFNI in Pueblo helped build America. All the places that created the story of the Western United States were built in some way with CFNI. They built all the products that connected us. It was really important in laying the groundwork for the society we live in today. It really sort of forges the cities and the transportation networks and the systems. That mill is Pueblo. Pretty much anybody you stop on the street and you talk to, they know somebody or have somebody in their family who worked in that plant. At one time, one in ten people in the state worked for that place. That is from Forging the West, a new film about CFNI. It is also the story of a bloody labor war and of how the company's workers made labor history. 
The film airs on Rocky Mountain PBS tomorrow night, and I spoke with Denver filmmaker Jim Havey back when it premiered in Pueblo last fall. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be with you. CF and I got its start because a man wanted to build a railroad running between Denver and Mexico. General William Jackson Palmer needed steel rails for that, as you might imagine. Why did he choose Pueblo for a steel mill back in the 1800s? Well, he worked for the Kansas and Pacific Railroad. He he grew up in Philadelphia. And uh, after a very prestigious high school that he went to, he got a job with the Kansas and Pacific. And uh, and that came just about the time it was coming out to Denver, arrived in Denver in 1870. And that was the point where he envisioned this north-south railroad that would go from uh, from Denver along the Front Range down to Santa Fe and into Mexico. And Pueblo was the right spot. Pueblo was the right spot because within a short distance of Pueblo, you could find every mineral and resource that you needed to to uh, run a railroad, mostly coal. So there were rich coal seams in southern Colorado, and CF and I ended up owning 60 coal mines to feed this enterprise. And in those days, coal was used for, for home use also. So there were lots of, uh, lots of demand for coal and lots of places to sell it. So former state historian Bill Convery says Palmer realized that building a railroad was key to unlocking all that potential wealth of gold, silver, coal. Palmer was a capitalist, but he was at heart a utopian. He believed that industry would create a better society for everyone. He spelled out a vision of an industrial society in Colorado that was managed by Palmer and his close friends for the benefit of all of the workers that was benevolent and concerned about the needs of the employees. But Palmer wasn't able to make that utopian vision a reality. What happened? Well, he he ran into financial problems, for, the, for, for one thing. He uh, was drained, really, by the... Uh, resources that he needed to run the steel mill. So when he built the steel mill in 1880, in order to make rails for the railroad, uh, that steel mill drained a lot of his financial resources. He ended up, he didn't have a lot of his own wealth. He ended up having to get partners and the partners said, hey, this this isn't going well. And, uh, and they replaced Palmer. Palmer resigned. Is Palmer the same Palmer as like Palmer Lake near Colorado Springs and the Palmer Divide? I'm, I'm sure that it is. That it is. He founded right. Colorado Springs as well. Okay. So they pushed him out Yes. He was he was the visionary. Who did they replace him with? John Cleveland Osgood was his replacement. And Osgood initially had some altruistic visions of, of taking care of people, mostly so that he could keep unions out. Unions were uh, frowned upon by industrialists in those days. And, and, uh, and so Osgood uh, did start some social betterment programs to help keep him a happy employee as an employee that won't go on strike. Uh, but uh, but that that only only worked so far as well, and, and Osgood himself stretched himself out too thin in the fight. This is a highly capitalized business, the steel business, and so these guys had to go with investors, and investors are watching very closely what's happening with their money. So Osgood was it was uh, eventually forced out. And around 1903, John D. Rockefeller, big name there, becomes majority shareholder of CFNI. That's right, John D. Rockefeller Jr. Uh, becomes the majority shareholder of CFNI, and uh, and he starts to uh, also go down the road of social betterment programs and and uh, develops uh, programs and uh, things that that will help keep employees happy. Uh, and he's but he's an absentee 
owner and the people who are running the company are very much against unions and really look at the miners in particular as people who are less than human. And, you know, the big the big th- thing after a mine accident, and there were many mine accidents, they would ask, how is the mule? Not how are the people? Hmm. They could easily replace the, the, uh, the people. And this led to strikes. This led to unrest. And eventually it led to, to real violence, including... Uh, violence wrought on the wives and children of strikers. That's right. And the uh, the Colorado Coalfield Wars uh, from 1913 to 1914 are a, a landmark in national labor history and culminated in the most violent incident, which was the, the Ludlow Massacre, where 11 children and two women were killed in uh, a confrontation between Supposedly Colorado National Guard people, but really mine operated mine detectives and people who were conscripted last minute by the the uh, one of the guard generals. But there there was violence in the camp, and, and the camp was burned to the ground. You say that it's an important chapter in labor history. What are its reverberations? Do you think the reverberations from Ludlow were 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 huge? The the the, the morning after John D. Rockefeller wasn't wasn't really paying all that much attention to what was going on in, in, the, in the strike. And the morning after, there were people in New York City outside his office in black armbands, hundreds of people marching, marching down, down the street. This was, you know, killing women and children in, in a, uh, an insurrection like this was, uh, was something that, that got headlines coast to coast. So give us an idea of the scale of CF&I in its heyday. How many people were working for the company? The, at the turn of the century, uh, there were one in ten Coloradans, ten percent of Colorado's workforce worked for the for the company. That's a huge. You know, it was the largest employer by far in, in Colorado. Yeah. Now the, the the real heyday for CFNI though, because Rockefeller did not really make a whole lot of money. He ran the company from 1903 until 1944. Didn't make a lot of money on on the enterprise, hmm. and it wasn't until the post war years that CFNI really boomed, and a, a company called the Allen Company took over, and they built it into. Uh, Companies that stretched coast to coast, they, they had many subsidiaries. They had 25,000 employees at the, at the peak in, in the country, and 12,000 plus of those were in Pueblo. Mm, but it had fingers beyond Pueblo. Oh, yes. That boom did not last, though, did it? No, it did not last. And uh, by 1974, there were nationally, I mean, there was there, there were 500,000 people working in the in, in the steel industry. By uh, 1992, that had dropped to 200,000. And part of that was because of, a lot of that was because of foreign competition, especially from Japan at that, at that time. And there were more strikes later and, in the history. Right. And there were, and there were more strikes, and uh, including a very long strike more recently in 1997 that uh, lasted Seven years. Yes, and Pueblo steelworker Mike Rodriguez remembers that strike. And my thoughts were at that time, in 1997, I'd had three years in the mill. I'll be going back to work three weeks or whatever. Well, it lasted, it lasted seven years before we went under contract. And during that time, I was locked out from the mill for five years. So did the mill shut down during that time? No, the mill did not shut down. They had replacement workers. The mill has been continually operating since uh, 1881 when the first rails moved off that, that, uh, the line. 
Uh, so it did not shut down. They had replacement workers. There were strikers at the entrance to the, of the plant for all that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was just a, 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 a nasty strike. For all that time, for those years? Yes. That would have just been such a presence on of, on the psyche of Puebloans. Yeah, it, it was, and it was a it was a hard fought battle. In the end, the strikers won. The strikers got the largest back pay settlement in uh, in American history in the steel industry, and uh, and so they did eventually have a big payday. But uh, it took a long time. All right, Ben Lutzi is the general manager of the Pueblo plant today, which is owned by Efraz, a Russian company, and it employs around uh, eight hundred fifty people. We operate an electric arc furnace, and we will take it from solid cold scrap to 3,000-degree liquid steel in about 34 minutes. We can fit about 130 automobiles in there. You, I think, saw this for yourself, this (laughs) operation. What's it like? It is... You know, the, the, everybody uses the word awesome uh, to, it, it, when, when things aren't that. There's very few things that are awesome. This is <laughs> awesome. And it really is like walking into Dante's Inferno. It is just the most uh, large-scale sparks, heat, fire. Uh, everything is very safe. They, they, they make uh, – they have a great safety program at Everest, and 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 everything everything is safe. But there is the scale of everything is so large, uh, and the fire and the sparks when they put all this scrap metal, as Ben mentioned, the equivalent of 130 cars into this furnace, it is there there it, it's very loud, and sparks and fire and smoke. It's uh, it's it's really something to see. And what products? Uh, is Efra's feeding these days? They are still making rails, as they have through the whole history of the company. They are the largest. Uh, the CFNI plant itself is, or the Everaz plant now, is the largest uh, rail producer in North America. And internationally, the company produce, is the largest uh, rail producer in the world. So they still do that. They also produce uh, wire uh, they have a wire mill that produces rebar for the construction industry, cool. uh, fine wire for suspension bridges and things like that. And then they also produce casing pipe for oil and grass, gas drilling. You've made a lot of films about Colorado's history, Jim Avey. Uh, why in Forging the West uh, did you f- feel that CF&I fit in to the larger story of Colorado? We have enjoyed telling the story of Colorado for a number of years, and uh, and this is a huge part of the story. It's southern Colorado. A lot of people don't know much about southern Colorado, but it also brought so much um, immigration and products that built the West of Colorado and built the state. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Jim Havey directed Forging the West, a new documentary about CF&I. We spoke when the film debuted in Pueblo last fall. It airs on Rocky Mountain PBS tomorrow night. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.